you would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are looking at the first 11 verses. And um, I, I will tell you as a pastor, there are times, uh, you know, I put this outline together several months ago. And um, there are times <clears throat> when uh, a text just rolls and you just cruise through it and have a good time and preach it, teach it, expound it, move on. Um, there are other times that dealing with a text and understanding that Second Corinthians is so personal to the Apostle Paul um, that uh, you have to kind of stop and... Um, I find myself at times completely overwhelmed with what is being said. Uh, in light of this week and what our country dealt with, the uh, murder down at Fort Hood and then uh, the guy in Orlando and a few other odds and ends. I mean, even the debate last night on whether federal money would be spent for abortions. Knowing... Uh, New legislation is coming to our brothers in the lands of Russia, uh, knowing that Alexander and Igor's houses of prayer are in need of um, fixing up and they don't have the money, uh, knowing what Pastor Philip is dealing with in India and the people that he's trying to share the gospel with and then finding out what happened to Netham in, uh, in India I would like to say that, you know, this was part of what I had planned to preach on, and the truth of the matter is, it's not. But it does fit the beginning of verse 8. Um, because it is an awesomeness and comfort that you and I deal with. And uh, I, I have prayed for all of you all week because of my heart in this text. I will warn you. I normally preach with five to seven pages of notes. Uh, today I'm setting with 17. Uh, so, I, <laughs> yeah, we, we're going to send out. That's why we got Stephanie downstairs. She's taking all that bread and making peanut butter sandwiches. Um, so um, I, I pray that you will hear. Um, I will tell you that it has impacted me, and I pray that it will impact you also. Let's pray, and then we'll read the first 11 verses. Father, we come to You and You alone. Because, Father, in this day, in this age, even in the comfort that we realize, uh, Father, this isn't comfort. And, uh, Father, I just pray that as our brother Paul set a, set a path as he followed our Savior and our Lord, Father, we who are called by Your name, Get beyond ourselves. And Father, understand that we're only dealing with eternity. Father, uh, we here gathered this day are not many in number. And yet, Father, there's always through the frailty of these earthen vessels that you do immeasurably more than we could ever think or imagine. Father, I know I wrestled with You this week and week and a half. I beg Your forgiveness. And uh, Father, I just... Uh, I understand what You're saying. And I pray that uh, maybe this message is just for me. Uh, Father, Father, I pray then that my brothers and sisters will be encouraged. It is You and You, Lord. Help us. Help us to walk worthy. In Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Beginning of verse 1, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all of the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort 
with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our suffering, so that you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. We have been looking at this comfort in trouble. We learned that trouble means a pressure, something that wants to stop us, to slow us down, to thwart us, to move us off task, to distract us, to afflict us, to make us ineffective. And we learned that comfort is not ease of life. It is strength through whatever it is that's hurting us. And we learned that the person of this in verse 3 is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies and the Lord of, and God of all comfort. We also understood in first part of verse 4 that there is the promise of comfort. It comforts us in all of our afflictions. In all of our afflictions. For the purpose of Verse four, the second half of verse four and six and seven, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in what? Any affliction, any affliction. Verse five, we found out there's an abundance because there is abundance of sufferings in Christ and there's an abundance of comforts in Christ. The key to it is, is that when it comes to being comforted by God, we need to understand is because we're doing his righteous work. We are in Christ suffering for Christ and his namesake. Guaranteed, you will be strengthened. Okay? As I went through this, and I kept struggling with this, and I kept reading this, and I kept absorbing this, and kept being beat by this text, it became very apparent what the Apostle Paul is giving to you and me this day. I see it here in the beginning of verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware. Um, that there is a question that is laid out here. It's implied. It's not stated. And it's a question that I know that every single person in this room and every single Christian who has ever walked the planet Earth one time or another or multiple times have asked the same question. Why do bad things happen to good people? This, there has been a lot of discussion about that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? People, I, I, the basis on it on human, the human level is people aren't willing to recognize, uh, they're not willing to admit that they are sinful. Um, and we, in case you didn't realize it, we live in a cursed fallen world. I also believe that we have an elevated opinion of ourselves. Um, Linsky put it this way, we have a lofty view of who we are. I think so. And, and when you have that idea, how could something bad happen to them and the reason is, is most people think they are good people. 
even among Christians. Even among Christians. I believe that Christians have fallen into this because um, there are books written about this monthly. And sometimes there are volumes of books written on this monthly. And, and, and you will hear it in phrases of, where is God in the midst of my trouble? Why, why am I in trouble? Why, why am I suffering? I am a child of the Most High God. Why would He treat His people this way? Why would He allow this to happen to us? And when I kind of did some research to find out this and look at this, um, you would almost think with the, the amount of material written on why bad things happen, that it was a difficult question. Or maybe even trying to solve this question is difficult. Maybe that's the problem. Because there's a whole bunch of books on it. And it's obviously that it's, it's, it's difficult or there wouldn't be that much written on it. Um, I believe that it can be answered very briefly. I believe that I can answer it in a broad statement, but I have some things I want to add to the broad statement. Bad things happen to good people because of sin. That's about as broad as I can make it. But if you really think about it, tell me I'm wrong. Um, we live in a sinful world. And by the way, in case you didn't realize it, we are sinful people. Did you know that we're even sinful people after we're saved? That's the craziest thing I've ever seen. The problem is with that answer... And my wife made this comment. <laughs> That's not satisfactory. That doesn't give me enough info. But I want you to keep that in mind because it comes into play in the understanding of this issue. Bad things do happen. And bad things do happen even to good people, bad things do happen even to God's people. Did you know that God allows bad things to happen to His people? Do I need to prove that? Do I need to illustrate that? But the problem with that is, why? Why? We don't question whether this is true or not, whether bad things happen. I think that everybody in this room has experienced that, some difficulty of some type, trials and troubles. We know that they happen, but the question then becomes, why? Why? Listen, in this room, as small as this group is today, there has been some devastating things happen. Why? And I have a list. I have a list that will be satisfactory for you who want more information. If you do not want more information, I would suggest you go to take your nap now. Okay? Because what you have right now is between point four and point five. I now have nine points on your outline. And I will cover all nine of them today. Get comfortable. Number one, why do bad things happen to good people? Number one, to test their faith, to test our faith. Is it real? To determine if our faith 
is a lasting faith. Okay, a, a phrase that came to my mind as I was struggling with this is, is it a destructible faith? Okay, listen, if it is a destructible faith, I will tell you right now, it is not a saving faith. Saving faith is indestructible. Okay? Saving faith endures to the end. Saving faith perseveres. Alright? I'll illustrate it. I have many illustrations of this. Uh, I'm going to try to use some that you haven't heard. How about Hezekiah? What? <laughs> yeah, Hezekiah. Second Chronicles, chapter 32, verse 31. What has happened is Hezekiah and the Isaiah the prophet, okay, have been, been at battle basically with the Assyrians and God has intervened supernaturally and destroyed the Assyrians. It's, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, and yet... It says in verse 31, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land. They were trying to figure out how this little bitty, non-really organized military defeated the Assyrians. How did this happen? Here's a phrase. God left him alone to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Do you get that? God left Hezekiah to test him. I want to make this clear. God abandoned Hezekiah so that Hezekiah could see what he was really like when he was left to himself. Listen, God knows the heart. God doesn't leave somebody to see how they're going to respond. God knows what's in the heart. God did this to Hezekiah so Hezekiah would see what his faith was. See, God knows what his faith is. See, but Hezekiah was amazing because his true saving faith Pass the test. When you feel completely abandoned by God, what do you put your faith in? Okay. When you think about it, I, you, you got to bring into this test Job. I mean, if you really think about it, Job was tested beyond the imaginations of you could combine everything that all of us have been through or all of us have ever go through. And we probably can't hang out with Job. Okay, Job had all of his children killed. Okay, and the thing was, it wasn't over a period of time, nor was the preparation. You know, your children have cancer. They have about a year left. Okay, he just got messengers. I mean, how nervous would it be to see? Here comes another messenger. <laughs> you know, no, this ain't going to be good. All of his children were killed. All of his possessions that he owned, and he was an extraordinarily wealthy man, were gone. Was lost. Not only that, now that there, that's, huh, that's a bad day there, man. But not only that, shortly thereafter, he was afflicted with physical disease that was taking him very near death. Listen, Job gives a whole new meaning to his world is caving in. We've all had that at times, haven't we? Oh, it just feels like my world's caving in. Really? Set it up to Job and see how you stand. In the middle of all of this, his wife's counsel is, why don't you curse God and die? You know what that tells me? Her faith was tested and she flunked. But yet Job makes this statement. Slay me and I will trust him. 
slay me and I will trust him? You know what that means? His faith passed. His faith passed. There's a statement in the book of Job that is fascinating to me because his response, you know, though you slay me, but then there was a phrase in there and I thought about this. It says, I had heard about God. I knew him to some degree. And you know what? Everybody in this room has known him to some degree. I don't care who you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. But Job says, I knew him to some degree, though this, through this, I see him clearly now. Oh, by the way, that phrase is before the tornado, the whirlwind that comes and says, were you there when I laid the foundation? But he mentions it again after the. When I think about Habakkuk, Habakkuk was a prophet of God and Habakkuk had a, (laughs) I would call it a dilemma. It was a dilemma that was beyond him. He was speaking for God to the people of Judah. And the problem was terrible, terrible, terrible things were happening to the people of God. And if you read the letter of Habakkuk, you will realize that in the process of this letter, what happens is he is crying out to God to stop the suffering of the people. I can just about guarantee you that nobody in this room has cried out to God for the sufferings of his people. Habakkuk was. He said, God, I know you sent me. I know that I am your man. I know that I speak forth your words and I do not understand how this calamity, this suffering, this affliction could come upon your people. Stop this. Redeem this people. Revive this people. Show your power. Make this people righteous. Bring revival, God. You know what's amazing? God answered him. But it was opposite of Habakkuk's pleas. He said, Habakkuk, I ain't bringing revival. And I am not going to bring an end to the suffering. Not only am I not going to bring an end to the suffering, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. Habakkuk's response is to be the same as you. Hey, you know, we, we, we've kind of screwed this thing up, but we're nowhere near as bad as the Chaldeans. And God says, I'm going to bring you the Chaldeans and the Chaldeans are going to act, act as your executioners. I look at that right there and say, you know what? Job wanted, or uh, Habakkuk wanted answers and now he got a more complicated problem. Problem number one, why doesn't God revive his people? Problem number two, if God's not going to, how can he make worse people be their judge? (laughs) Habakkuk was in a fog. He was in the midst of this calamity. In the midst of this chaos. He was in the midst of this overwhelmingness. And yet Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 4 comes back with the very simple answer. It's a very simple principle. It never changes. It is God's testing is your faith. Why? The just shall live by faith. Period. You can summarize all 66 books of the Bible in that phrase. The just shall live by faith. You know what he's saying? Trust me. Trust me. When you are in trials, why do bad things happen to good people? To test your faith. Listen, if everything in the world goes backwards, you're going to trust in the Lord? That's what Habakkuk is telling us. That's what Paul told the church in Rome. The just shall what? Live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk. Why? The just shall live by faith. It all boils down. Do you trust me? 
Because saving faith is an eternal faith, and if it's an eternal faith, it will never, ever, ever sway when it trusts in God. And therefore, when you get hit by something, the question is simple. Do you trust Him? Because true faith says yes. One of the things God is doing to bring these trials is to test your faith, to test my faith. And I know you're going to do it. Well, maybe you won't. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. Well, why does he do that? Couldn't he just put like a, an E on my forehead that says I'm elect? <laughs> you know, give me a little stamp on my hand that allows me to enter? Let me tell you something. He never does it for his sake. He's always doing it for our sake. That's interesting. It's, it's, it's for us. He's doing it for you and me. Let me ask you a question. Don't you want to know? Anybody here ever doubted their salvation? I'm going to ask you a question. Why? Well, I'm not going to do it no more. Because <laughs> it's obvious you're mad at me. Don't you want to know whether your faith is a saving faith? Don't you want to know if your faith is an enduring faith, an eternal faith, an indestructible faith? Guess how you're going to learn that? Getting lotto numbers. <laughs> no! You will learn it when bad things happen to you, God is giving you the gift of security. He's giving you the gift of confidence. He's solidifying your hope. See, by testing your faith, when you pass the test, you have an object affirmation. You see it. Though you slay me, I will trust you. I will trust you. It becomes assurance. True faith. True faith cannot die. No matter how severe the trial. So if your faith endures, it's a saving faith. And God will give you a gift that proves that it's indestructible. Okay? So God causes bad things to happen to good people. One, to test their faith. Is it indestructible? Second thing, God has bad things, allows bad things to happen to good people to wean us from the world. You get that? To wean us from the world. Uh, it, it's, it's like to help break us of our attachments to the world. Okay? Listen, I, we tend, collectively, we tend to trust in all the worldly things. I shared with you two letters last week, one from Alexander, one from Igor, the amazing things God is doing through what they're doing, but they're needing, in need of funds. Okay, listen, I got news for you. I can take the poorest person in this room and you make more money than most of the congregation in Alexander or Igor's church. You put their whole congregation together and you'll make more. And they're asking for help. $15 sends a Ugandan or a Tanzanian or a Malawian to a pastor's conference so that he can actually get his hands on the Word of God and use the Word of God for the transformation of souls. $15, we can send them a Bible. A Bible is probably the most concise and most uh, the greatest single tool that you could put into a man's hand who was going to preach the gospel because it's got all the instructions in it. That's 30 bucks. All at once. And now he's asking for stars. He's $25 for a star. How in the world are we... And the budget. He said the budget's in the toilet. How in the world are we ever going to get through that? Let me ask you a question. What are you attached to? What are you attached to? 
See, we get... We trust in worldly things. We trust in worldly resources. We trust in human reason. We trust in our money. We trust in power, prestige, influence, friendships. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And the things we trust in. I have an education. I have a degree. I have this. I have this talent. I have this ability. I have this. And it goes on and on and on and on. And you know what? The Lord will wean you from that. He will wean you from having trust in worldly things. And, and I believe what I see in the church in America is that it's beyond trust. We have a confidence in worldly things. I'll give you an illustration of this. It comes out of the Gospel of John, chapter 6. <clears throat> Philip, the disciples, are surrounded by multitudes. I like that word. You know what that means? A ton bunch. <laughs> There's a lot of people. Jesus got him a crowd. He's got him a crowd. Therefore, Jesus lifting his eyes, seeing this great crowd, that this large crowd is coming to him, he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that this, these can eat? Verse 6 says, Jesus was saying this to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. All right, we need to get $150,000 worth of Bibles and $150,000 worth of money so we can get food and shelters for 10,000 pastors in Uganda. Okay. You and I do the same thing. As Philip did, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive just a little. You know what he does? Same thing you and I do. Well, I need to go look at my bank account. I need, I, 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 I better, I'm going to take an inventory here. Let me, let me see how this is going to work. Philip is standing before the creator of existence and says, I don't think we got the cash. I, I just look around and I see what I see and I'm thinking we're not going to pull this off. And what do you and I do? How many times you come to the end of the month and you run out of money? And you immediately go, I don't know how we're going to do this. How many times have you got yourself in a financial crisis and you did it intentionally and you immediately cheat who? God. Bring an idea. Why? Well, it's like this. How else am I going to do that? You didn't take inventory, did you? What are you attached to? What do you put your trust in? Just an idea. Jesus put Philip through a little test and Philip does his inventory, says, man, I got 200 denarii. If I could buy a loaf of bread with all 200, I ain't going to touch this crowd opportunity to show that he had been weaned from his worldly confidence was given unto Philip and he said it can't be done. Interesting thought, isn't it? It's just a test. Listen, the Lord will bring you to extreme situations and he will take you to where you have no capabilities left. He wants you to be at a place where there aren't any more human resources. Where there are no nowhere to turn but to Him. Why? Because that will wean you from your confidence in the worldly things. He'll pull them all off. He pulls it away because it's passing away. Moses in chapter 11 of Hebrews 26, it says, by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He was willing to say no to the family prestige, to the family culture, to the elite society. And you know what is amazing about that? He wanted to take up the cause of slaves. It would seem to me like if I was going to try to help the slaves and I was in the ruling sect of those over the slaves and I was in line to literally inherit the throne, then it would behoove me to stay there so that I could take care of the slaves. Wouldn't it? It seems a lot smarter to hang out with the power brokers and then you can intercede on behalf of the slaves. He says, no, I want to take care of the Jews. And he even took it to the point where he killed an Egyptian. He was on the run for 40 years. And God took him from being in the elite part of human society and made him wandering around in the desert watching flocks. Why? No more resources. What is he going to put his confidence in? He said no to everything. He said no to everything. He said yes to the reproach of Christ. He looked at the eternal. He saw beyond the world and beyond the day-to-day, the grind, beyond me, beyond my comfort. Trials will do that for you. They will wean you from worldly things. Okay? So, test my faith to wean me from the worldly things. Thirdly, they will give me a heavenly hope. They will fill your heart with anticipation for the glory to come. Trials will do that. Did you know that? When trials come, when bad things come, brother, they will. You're either in a bad thing now, you're either coming out of a bad thing now, or you're headed for a bad thing. Guaranteed. So, I ask a question when you fall into this trial, and I don't care what it is. It can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be financial. I don't care what it is. When you fall into this, where's your hope? I have a verse. You knew that. Letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 3. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulation. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. For while we were still helpless at the right time, God died for the ungodly. Where's your hope? Is it in a relationship? Is it in a job? Is it in education? Is it in travel? What is it? Or is it in the heavenlies? See, if you look beyond yourself and you understand that I am looking for a proven character, that proven character will reflect heaven. And when it reflects heaven, you can say, is because I endured through what? I exult in tribulation. Really? I don't know, most of you are saying, you know what, every time he preaches something, I have to go through it. Boy, I wish I'd have missed today. Do you understand that no matter how bad it gets here, it won't matter? (laughs) Did you know that? It don't matter. You couldn't be disappointed. Because you're not putting any of your stock in it anyway. If you put your stock in here, guess what? You'll be disappointed. I don't care what it is. I expect my kids to do this or I expect this kind of a house or this size of car or this that vacation or this, that, or the other. You know what? Guarantee every time. Disappointing. But if you look at the heavenlies, guess what? What are you going to be disappointed by? See, trials produced as patience. Patience is that endurance. Okay? That endurance, as it accumulates, as you keep pressing through it, pressing through it, and pressing through it, until you have a proven character, and the proven character then lives in hope. The hope of what? Christ! 
seeing him face to face, when your faith no longer is faith, it is just sight. That's all. And if you look around at what's going on in our communities, if you look around what's going on in our society, if you look around what's going on on our planet, I hope you ain't putting a lot of hope in it. I know some people say hope and change. It is going to change, but there ain't no hope. And I don't care who's driving the bus. It will change. I guarantee you that. I've read the end of the book. you will be able to look at the Apostle Paul and say, the sufferings of this world cannot compare. It's hard for us in this country to understand that, isn't it? Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, we see with the Apostle Paul, he says, you know what? We do not lose heart. I I don't lose heart. Verse 16. I don't lose heart. I don't lose heart. Why? I do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying. Anybody here think your outer man isn't decaying? Come talk to me. I'll be gentle. Okay? There ain't nobody in here. I ain't seen that gravity ain't helping you. Just in the wrong direction. The outer man is decaying. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You feel that way? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. (laughs) I love that. But you know what? I prefer that you all go through it and I'll just love it. Why? An eternal weight of glory. You ever thought about that? Eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. I don't lose heart. How can you lose heart when you're looking at everything in the eternals? You know, if I suffer, fine. If I suffer for the world, fine. I'll take all that is given to me for Christ's sakes because you may beat me down. But you know what? The accumulation of eternal reward is in the life to come. In the life to come. Verse 18 says, while we, why, while we look not at the things which we have seen, but at the things which are not seen. You know what you're putting your faith? When you come into trials and tribulations, when you come into suffering, when you come into bad things, what are you looking at? The things you can see or the eternal weight that is on the other side. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal, Paul tells us. That's why Paul can say, to live is Christ. You want to finish it? To die is gain. Why is it that Christians immediately diagnosed with a terminal affliction, their first response is, heal me. Really? Why is that? Well, perhaps I haven't lived as Christ. I'd like a second chance. See, trials call us to a heavenly hope. They test our faith, they wean us, and they attach us to heaven. I got a a little statement I write in my Bibles. Every once in a while, um, just, you know, you have one in bad days. I'm sure you guys haven't, but I've had a few. Better led by God than bled by life. Just an idea. Somebody said that. I remember hearing somebody quote them or read it or something, and I wrote it down. I have no idea who said it, but there's a lot there. Fourthly, Bad things happen to good people to show us what we really love. Everybody's saying, man, I knew he was going there. It's part of your sanctification. Did you know that? 
Trials will reveal in us what is most precious to us. Did you know that? What is important? If a proven character is most precious, if enjoying the sufferings for Christ for the sake of being in the fellowship of His sufferings with Him is most precious, you know what? You can endure anything. Anything. You can literally walk in the footsteps of Job. If bearing the cross... If bearing the reproach of Christ is most precious to you, then you'll suffer the loss of anything or of everything. But if your bank account is precious, stock market can kill it. Federal government can kill it. Loss of your job you will step into a great place of despair. Concern. Worry. Stress. What am I going to do for Christmas? What am I going to do with birthday presents? I've seen that. I've seen people get, you know, I just didn't really get as much for my birthday. Or I didn't get as much for Christmas as I, you know, I know it's an economic problem. A crazy pastor on Christmas Eve, he was always saying, the greatest gift's already been given, but what's he talking about? He hasn't seen the new iPods, nanophone, big screen. See, if those things are precious to you, then you are not able to back up and say, Lord, I love you supremely. Doing wondrous work. Have you ever thought about the loss of everything as the wondrous work of God molding me in the image of Jesus Christ and praise Him for it? Just an idea. See, it all depends on what you love the most. Love possessions the most? Lose a job? Can't make your mortgage? You're not going to have any fun. You'll be in despair. You might even shake your fist at God. You could even question God's integrity. You might even question God's love. I've got to give you the illustration. Everybody knows about this. And Abraham and Isaac, there you have a father's love. But you have more than that. You have a man who has a child in his 90s. It's his only child. His child. Look. Me and my wife, we can see the child. Not only is it his child, it is the child of the covenant. It is God-promised child. This child will be the seeds that my people will be more than the grains of sand. This is a promised child. I love this child. I waited a long time for this child. I was almost a hundred when I had the two o'clock in the morning feedings. And God says, take him up on Mount Moriah and plunge a knife into his heart. Do you have a father's love? The covenant promise love? The promised love of him being your next generation and the multiple generations of a great nation? And you want me to what? You know what Abraham did? took him up, rear back, prepared to stick that knife in that kid's heart. And God says, what is precious to you, Abraham? His love for God was greater than his love even for his son. See, if you love God's purposes... Knowing that He's sanctifying you, He's molding you to the image of Christ, you'll love that more than all. Except what God brings into your life. Well, m- maybe it's health. You, you love health. I want to be healthy. I want to, you know what? I want to leave this life being able to walk and having all my wits about me and I can see and have a sharp mind and, and, and all the rest of it. And then you know what you're asking for? 
to be hit by a bus. Because if you grow old, it falls apart. I don't care how much you exercise it. My mom ate fiber to the point of disgust. She would not buy. Well, I went to get her some bread one time and she said, well, you didn't get the whole grain wheat pure shell shucked wheat. I was like, what? You want me to just go get you some limbs to chew on? But I mean, that's the way she ate. She was always very particular about eating and eating healthy and not processing all the rest. And she got colon cancer. You know what I told her? You should have been eating quarter pounders with cheese. At least you would have had fun getting cancer. You know what happens to those people when they get a disease? God points out to them what is most precious in their lives. If I accept my life and God brings an illness, then I know it is something for His purpose to sanctify me. Trials show what is precious to you. Fifthly, it teaches us obedience. I mean, it is right to say that bad things happen to good people to test our faith, to wean us, to give us, attach us to the um, heavenlies, to show what we love. But most trials come to us as chastening because we're sinful. And it is through these trials that we learn that sin has, uh, uh, shall we call it, painful consequences. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. For they discipline us for a short time that seems best to them. But He disciplines us, that's speaking of our fathers, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may what? Did you hear that? For we may share in His holiness. Your chastening is so that you can share in His holiness. That's an interesting thought, don't you think? Because He says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Duh. (laughs) Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Interesting thought, isn't it? Um, Chastening shows us the value of obedience. And let's be realistic. It's a great lesson. We bring ourselves into most chastening, most trials, most tribulations. Many of our trials is because of our sin. And just back up. What is most precious to you? Well, the trial will expose it, and the odds are, if it isn't Christ and His name, then it is sin. Guess what? It'll be exposed, and He will bring you into obedience. Sixthly, bad things happen to good people that God can reveal His compassion. God is always concerned, throughout Holy Writ, is always concerned to manifest Himself. Okay? So, He wants to reveal His compassion. It is God's desire that we understand who He is and know His nature. That's His desire. That's why He gives you the Bible. I want you to know me. He wants to tell you. He he wants us to see His nature. Listen, if God is a God of compassion, if God is the God of mercy, if God is the God of grace, of God of pity, the Father of all mercy and the God of all comfort, then He needs an opportunity to show that. No calamity, no comfort. No loss, no need for loving kindness. No pain, there's no need for pity. The best 
way to illustrate this or to summarize it or to define it comes by the psalmist, Psalm David, Psalm 63, verse 3. And this kind of ties the last two, the last one and this one together. Because your loving kindness is better than life. What do you love? What do you love more than life? That's what the psalmist is asking. He's loving kindness. It's better than anything in life. That's what Job said. I heard. I heard of you with my ears. Now my eyes. I see what you do and what you are about. God is never so intimately known to us than when he comes to us in our pain. Is that not true? When you're in pain, when you're in suffer, when you are eyeball deep in bad things, how close are you on your prayer time? How intimate is your relation with God? Why? Because it is His loving kindness we are seeking in the midst of heartache, in the midst of physical affliction, in the midst of emotional affliction. We want His loving kindness. That's when we are the closest. The greater the trouble, Linsky says... The purest time of intimacy. Greater manifestation of the Lord is His loving kindness better than anything in life. Is that right? Seventh thing. I know, everybody's like, how many you got? I'm not telling. Seventh thing. Why do bad things happen to good people? It is to develop spiritual strength for greater usefulness. Okay? You will not be used greatly in the kingdom of God if you haven't been through the ringer. Sorry. I I don't know how else to describe it. You have to be tested person to be put in really difficult ministries. Let me tell you something. I do not know a place more difficult to minister the Word of God than where I am right now. And there has been some things that I have been through that I wouldn't wish on an enemy. The more you are tested, the more you are refined by trials and trouble, the more useful you will become. Illustrated. You know the text, but do you know its context? The book of James, chapter 1. Consider it all joy, brethren. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, we all like that, especially when we're trailing somebody who's going through a trial, huh? When they're in a trial, we tell them, hey, count it all joy, Bubba. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ooh, see, that's the context. The key to that phrase is, I don't want you to be lacking in anything. How do I get to that place? Trials. And the degree of the trials will be the degree of the suffering. And then that suffering will be the degree of the comfort, will be to the degree of the endurance, will be to the degree of the result, and it will have its complete and perfect work, and you will be lacking in nothing. You don't go to seminary or Bible college and come out and say, I'm ready for ministry. You go through hell. And then you're ready for ministry. Eighth thing. It enables us to help Bad things, good people, enables us to help others in their trials. Well, we went through this two weeks ago. You know this well. My difficulties, my difficulties is so that God can strengthen me so that I can help you. Your difficulties is so God can strengthen you so you can help us. I know. Yay. Sign me up. Strength to me comes from God to strengthen you with the same strength that comes to me. That's first uh, or second Corinthians chapter one, verses four and five. We've already looked at it. The ninth thing is that we can see God on display, and that is the awesomeness of comfort, and we will deal with that next week. Amen. Father, I thank you for trials. Tribulations, heartache, 
Father, pains of this life, those that we inflict on ourselves, and Father, even those that we inflict on others. And yet, Father, I trust you. I trust you. Father, I pray that these precious people will trust you regardless of what happens. Regardless of what happens. Father, I have been truly encouraged by your words. Yes, Father, I am aware that uh, we get to practice what we preach. And Father, I trust you. Father, may we be known as people who lean full weight on the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. To your glory and praise. Amen.